This is the Revival Leadership Podcast. Great to have you back on the podcast, Father Len. And great to be back with you guys. Always good to hear what you're up to and helping us uh, in revival leadership. Love it. So as a recap, in this season four, we've been talking about revival, what it is, why it's important, why even after 2020, it's still on, why it's still happening, why we need to get ready for revival and how to get ready, namely prayer. But in this episode, we want to talk about one of the key issues that has come up in prayer as many of us have been praying for revival and the issue is we believe a barrier to revival um, that we want to talk today about the disunity of the church yeah and because like we are living in the time of deep and profound political division and cultural division and you know we remark on it all the time everyone talks about it but it really is feels fairly extreme right now and the division has infiltrated the body of Christ. The church is divided politically and culturally and ethnically and socially. And this, we think, is a problem. Of course, we all know that unity is a good thing. We all enjoy you know, singing songs that make us feel like we're unified. Uh, but the unity of the church means far more than that. And it's a particular area of passion for you, Father Len. It's been... Uh, It has been since your days in the Episcopal Church, where you sought to be an agent of reconciliation, and we know that it remains an area of deep conviction and concern for you today. So, Len, why don't you start us off? Why is the unity of the Church of such critical importance? Yeah, thanks, you guys. Um, Yeah, indeed, uh, I I was involved in the Episcopal Church at a time when I watched a denomination just literally tear itself apart uh, in in so many ways. And um, to a certain extent, now that I'm in the Anglican Church, which is a a, uh, kind of, the, if you will, the parent body, although in the U.S. this is a restorationist movement restoring some doctrinal conviction uh, to the Anglican witness in the U.S., I'm noticing that already uh, I'm seeing signs of disharmony and disunion uh, that are beginning to affect this expression of the body of Christ. So yes, it's been a longtime passion of mine. Uh, why is this important? Well, it, it seems to be really significant in the life and ministry of Jesus as he uh, was with us. Uh, it was part of his prayer that he uh, gave uh, to the Father on the night before he died. So mm-hmm. that's pretty important. That's a pretty <laughs> key part in the life of, of Jesus. Um, he prayed uh, for the unity of the church in John chapter 17. Uh, Picking up in verse 9, Jesus says, I'm praying for them, praying for his disciples. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So just think about that. Jesus is praying that these believers would be protected. Now, what does that mean? Protected from death? Well, no, most of them died martyrs' deaths. Protect them from, um, you know, uh, 
running out of uh, energy to maintain the gospel. No, he's praying that they'd be protected from disunity because he says that they may be one. Protect them so they may be one. This is a huge, huge concern of, of Jesus and of his followers as the church continued. Picking it up uh, again in John chapter tw uh, 17 and verse 20. He's praying not only for those who were with him on that night, but he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So there's this sense that this unity um, will not only... Uh, be because of the protection of the Lord from elements that are going to drive us apart from one another, but also it's part of our mission. It's part mm. of the evangelistic strategy of Jesus that the world would look at us and say, wow, why are these disparate people so incredibly different from one another culturally, uh, you know, physically, every possible way uh, that we are different from one another, including perhaps even different things that we emphasize in the life of the worldwide body of Christ? Uh, you know, this part of the body is an eye, this part is a hand, this part is a foot, but it's all part of the body, that that's part of God's strategy, that out of that unity, the non-believing world will kind of look at us and say, wow, what has brought them together when so many people seem to be falling apart? This is also picked up later in the teaching of the Apostle Paul, this amazing passage in Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. He's this prisoner of the Lord. He wants the believers to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So we're moving into this again. Make mm -hmm. every effort, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Every effort. I mean, that's just is like astounding. Every you know, effort. this should be huge, not just some efforts. Oh, yeah, yeah, we got we to gotta keep ourselves together. No, every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, that's really important, of the Holy Spirit. So this is not an organizational unity. This isn't just, you know, okay, we got to keep everybody aboard so we can keep the, the organization afloat. Every effort to keep unity, the Spirit, and the bond of peace. And then this amazing thing. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called uh, to when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. Say, Paul, what do you think? What do you think you're trying to promote here? What's your uh, favorite? What's you know? your favorite number, Paul? <laughs> yeah, what's your favorite number, Paul? Seven times, and there's that wonderful biblical word. You know, the mm -hmm. the uh, the kind of the completion of this unity. Um, and then he goes on to talk about, uh, you know, how God has uh, put certain gifts in this church. There's that apest thing, apostles, uh, prophets, evangelists, pastors, uh, shepherds and teachers, uh, Ephesians 4.11, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity. There's that oneness thing. Mm -hmm. Unity in the faith mm -hmm. and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So this just seems to be such a huge emphasis in the teaching of the New Testament. And I'm afraid um, 
you know, in, in the world in which perhaps most of the people who listen to this podcast operate, this is something that perhaps until generational, current generation has been kind of ignored, the unity uh, of the church, but it's just huge in scripture. Um, even in revival history, uh, there has been an awareness of how the unity of the church is critical um, for the inception of revival. At the very least, can we say this, that no revival um, ever started uh, by an individual. You know, we talk about the, the the Great Awakening as it occurred in Massachusetts, and we think of Jonathan Edwards, and we think, well, he's the boy that started it. No, he didn't. It was a group of people, and he was one of those who uh, rose to leadership. Uh, or you think of the Azusa Street revival and the, and the African-American pastor who was there. He did not foster that revival. It was something that God was doing, bringing groups together, uh, probably micro-communities to start with, and certain individuals boiled to the surface. Duncan Campbell, the revival in the Hebrides, said, I didn't start this thing, but God mm -hmm. used me to help manage it as I came along. So mm. there's this micro-community of people coming together. In the case of the Azusa Street Revival, folks from different nationalities, from different uh, races, uh, both genders were involved in this type of ministry, this unifying thing that people take note of, um, both an avenue for entering into revival and also for sustaining revival. Mm -hmm. um, in his book on the dynamics of the spiritual life, which is really a study of revival, Richard Lovelace lists as one of the elements of renewal coming out is that there is community being in union uh, with his body for believers coming together in micro-communities and in macro-communities. That's what revival does. You know, revival just spreads like a wildfire. It's like a fire looking for other fires to join. I mean, that's unfortunately mm -hmm. what happens out mm -hmm. west uh, each of these fire seasons, that fires join bonds together and then they just take off. Mm -hmm. And that's what revival does as it becomes a macro community thing. Last comment just in this regard, Jonathan Edwards, who really is the doctor of of uh, Protestant revival in the U.S., serving in the first part of the 18th century at the Congregational Church in Northampton, he had a vision of unity, particularly unity in prayer. He was the one that inaugurated what were called concerts of prayer, where mm -hmm. believers would come together not to hear a concert of musicians, but to come together in one accord, in concert with one another. Different churches, different expressions of the true faith in Jesus Christ under the influence of the Holy Spirit and revival would be together. He speaks in one place, he talks about union in religious duties, especially in the duty of prayer, in praying one with and for another, and jointly for our common welfare, above almost all other things, tends to promote mutual affection and endearment. In fact, it's just kind of amazing to think about. First part of the 18th century, this guy had a vision of a worldwide fellowship of united prayer. Mm -hmm. Now, it's just amazing to think about. Imagine this is before any kind of global communication process to even get a message over to the motherland, to to Great Britain or to to the uh, to Europe. Took how many how many weeks did it take to travel by boat? Oh, wow. You're not having communication, but he had this vision of believers being united in prayer. So, shall we say revival? And, and, the, and the promotion of a healthy church movement, wherever, has this vision of unity all about it. 
And so disharmony, disunity, when we see it coming, is kind of like warnings as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And I think the New Testament. So. Yeah, it's so good. I mean, and you talk about unity, Len, as like a, a important aspect for in revival history. I, I think we've also been reflecting on how often it was disunity that that broke up revivals. Totally. You know, like totally. for instance, the Azusa Street revival was really um I mean, they couldn't stop no one could could stop the the eventual fruit from it, but it was at, at its you know kind of ba- surface level broken up by disunity as was totally. the um first great awakening uh totally. was disrupted by disunity. Yeah. So, I mean, think of Azusa Street, for example. Think of this movement that was the inauguration of Pentecostalism, which, you know, was the most significant factor, I think, for the advance of the of the gospel in the 20th century. Without question, uh, Pentecostalism just took off. But because of what happened at Azusa Street with a white leader who came in and denounced what he called the mixing of the races, he denounced church unity. The kind Mm -hmm. of unity pictured in Revelation chapter 7. Because he denounced that, we had a a schism in Pentecostalism between um, North and South, basically, between uh, white and and black. And it was just, uh, it it wounded the witness of Pentecostalism. I mean, the strength of Pentecostalism is that it even went forth and did amazing things and only recently has begun to uh, develop ways of seeking a healing of that uh, disharmony. Yeah. So the uh, the unity of the church is such a central concern to Jesus and in revival, but like the reality r- right now is that we are experiencing this rather intense disunity in our nation and in the church. What are your thoughts about that, Len? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think there there have always been um, differences and disharmony in the church. And, and actually, uh, Paul, and I think it's 1 Corinthians 11, says there have to be disagreements among you in order to prove the genuineness of your faith. There is disunity that comes because certain elements uh, of the church decide to promote teachings that are what we call in our tradition strange doctrine strange doctrine and there does need to be a kind of a reckoning about that and in some cases a separation uh, because of that in fact the protestant reformation was all about that shall we say but this is different Uh, this is something Mm -hmm. else uh, that's happening differences in particular due to political differences And I think we've sort of seen that developing really over the past, I would say, 12 years, at least in the U.S. The the past three election cycles have been places in which believers have come to, you know, be separating from one another. I mean, I've heard people say relative to the most recent election um, that anybody who voted for Donald Trump cannot possibly be a Christian, period. Mm -hmm. End of Mm -hmm. sentence. And vice versa. Anybody who voted for Joe Biden cannot be a Christian. Just mm-hmm. end of sentence. Mm-hmm. You know, that's sort of the eye saying to the hand, I don't need you. I mean, it's just kind of like, wow. what? Where did that come from? I mean, even in the, in, in the scripture where Paul talks about people saying, well, I, you know, I belong to 
I belong to Paul, I belong to Peter, oh, and I belong to Jesus, you know, he condemns that. Can you imagine what he's saying about people say, well, I belong to Trump, and I belong to Biden, or I belong right. to Republican, or I belong to Democrat, or I'm above it all, you know, which is what, you know, some people say, I'm neither, I'm neither, and I'm better than all of you. <laughs> I mean, it's that kind of stuff. And yet, that's actually predicted um, that that's going to happen. Second uh, Timothy three uh, talks about you know false teaching, people who kind of go after teaching and and influence that is really not of God, and and frankly, making sort of a god out of your political ideology is exactly what uh, people uh, Paul is talking about here. He calls it godless chatter, godless hmm. chatter. Those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. And uh, I'm sorry to say, um, believers on left and right, as we move in further into those ideologies, we become less and less god godly. We become mm -hmm. ungodly. And that teaching spreads like gangrene, spreads like gangrene. So some of the conspiracy theories that we've had on left and right are gangrenous teaching that <laughs> infects infects both say sides it, say and detracts from the gospel. <laughs> gangrenous teaching. Gangrenous. Teaching. You heard it here first. Godless and chatter. Gangrenous and, teaching. And we there know you go. we're fully aware that we are going to get in trouble for this podcast. And we're just, Hello. you know, but I. Well, let me run this list. Let me run this list from Second <laughs> Second Timothy. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. <laughs> well, whoa. Yeah. I mean, there's a separation right there. Yeah. But this is where all of us are headed, and yeah. we're being curated by the stuff we watch and listen mm -hmm. to. They're saying, more, more of that, more cowbell, more cowbell. More cowbell. And <laughs> off we go, off we go into our little right-left world, and the gospel is left without a our, vehicle. Our uh, little... Because we carry it. We're the, we're the Christophers of the world. We are the Christ bearers. We're the ones to carry the gospel, and if we be divided... We have half a gospel or less. Yeah, so, and yikes. you know, it reminds me of of like in when Mark Sayers in this culture moment talks about secularism. One of the effects of secularism is that as religion disappears from the secular consciousness, that impulse in human beings, the religious impulse, seeks other outlets and eventually politics becomes a form of religion but it's a it's actually a false religion yeah and um yeah. and it makes me think too of philippians 1 where paul similar to ephesians 4 paul says um make a uh, he says live worthy of the gospel of christ um so that whether i see you or just hear about you i know that you're united you know, in the one faith, contending as one contending. for the faith of the gospel. And contending that, side by side. Contending yes. side by side. It's amazing. Yeah. And that and that this unity is gonna be a sign to, you know, the world and to Satan that, you know, Jesus is gonna win. 
but yep. uh, but the disunity is also a sign that and nt Wright says that that's a sign to the powers and principalities that they're still actually in control and so right. i think of it like a like the disunity in the church, especially around politics these days, is like a warning light on the dashboard. <laughs> you know, it's like check engine. It's a sign, and it's telling us that there's something really wrong under the hood of the church. Like yeah. the fact that we are disagreeing or that we could, you know, there are b- believers who love Jesus who would be able to say this about someone who disagrees politically is, uh, is a check engine light for us. Yeah, and we keep driving. You know, people say, yeah. you know, that little check engine light is on there. Well, you know, and they keep driving, and then you know the engine is wrecked, and so we keep moving forward. And this is something we're not necessarily paying attention to. Yeah, like it's a like, huge warning light. Like when the warning light comes, yeah, you 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 actually do want to take the car to the shop at that point yeah. and say, yeah, you really something's wrong. <laughs> yeah, something's not working right here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Or it's overheating. You know, you see that little heat indicator go up. You better pull over right then and there, uh, and so on. So I think we need to pull over, uh, shall we say, and take a look at what's happened to us, what has happened to us in the West in particular. But, you know, again, Western culture is exported all over the world. So this is happening everywhere, I mm-hmm. think, uh, that believers are getting drawn into you know, senseless controversies that are distracting us from the real deal. Now, like we might ask the question though. So the question that comes up for me and, you know, Adam too, and uh, all of us is like, why are we as Christians in such disagreement right now when it comes to politics? Like, what is it about this moment that has brought us to this place? Well, I think this is something you guys have talked about on the podcast, that remnant-regnant paradigm. Did you talk about that? We have not well, yet. You so have not. All right. Take well, it away. Please indulge us. And, 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 and I, don't know, I didn't invent this. Somebody else invented this. Do either of you guys know where this came from? I only read about it in a, an article. Uh, I think it was okay. Christianity Today. Christianity Today. Anyway, yeah. it's, it's a wonderful, it's a, it's a very helpful concept. It's the difference between being called to be a remnant uh, uh, in, in remnant leadership or being in regnant leadership. And the word regnant means being a king or being in charge. Mm. Generally speaking, uh, for the witness of the scriptures, we have always been a remnant. We have been something small but mighty. We have not been uh, running the show in the culture. And generally speaking, uh, whenever that happens, it does not go well for us. Uh, Mm -hmm. Someone, I think, said, uh, when the church marries a, a, a culture of a particular age, it becomes a uh, a widow in the next age. Uh, you know, mm. we 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 ultimately um, kind of end up getting divorced from that particular culture. It's just not it's just not a great way to operate. But in any event, the remnant idea is that we are not in charge of the culture in which we live. We're called to be a godly influence, a leaven in the lump that then grows from within and influences in a way that is kind of bottom up rather than top down. 
The regnant picture, however, which is present in, in Scripture and in Christian history, is that we are meant to be in charge. We're meant to be uh, influencing the primary moving elements of culture. And so the way to get revival going uh, is to influence the key leaders of revival, to take, shall we say, those leadership structures for God. And I think that's what we're seeing operating here in the United States in particular is that we have an element of the church that says, no, actually, the way to proceed with revival is to capture things like the presidency and the Congress and the courts and other elements such as that, to infuse those with godly people who share the principles of the gospel, or, uh, if they're not believers, uh, and to operate that way. Whereas the other vision is, no, actually, that's not going to work. Uh, that's basically going to be only generational at best. Our mm -hmm. job is to be the remnant influence that influences mm -hmm. not only this generation, but generations to come. And it, it, it's affected our vision of what it looks like to promote the kingdom of God, hmm. the kingdom of God from the top down or the kingdom of God from the bottom up. Now, it is true that if the remnant paradigm, which I think is the dominant paradigm of the scriptures, I, I think the, the regnant paradigm as a way of promoting revival is faulty. It, it, has, it has not ever really worked in Scripture except in particular golden ages. Uh, it certainly is not described by Jesus as a picture of the advancement of the kingdom of God. Mm. I mean, look at the song of Mary, the Magnificat. Uh, that's a toppling of the high and mighty and a raising mm -hmm. up of the humble and the meek, not so that they become the high and mighty, but that they're the humble and meek who exercise influence and leadership out of that posture, as did Jesus. Right. But in any event, um, there is a sense in which as that remnant begins to influence the culture and cultural leaders begin to be transformed as they join us in repenting and falling on our faces before God and saying, as so many people did to Jesus and his followers, what should we do? Then it is the job of the church to operate out of the regnant paradigm to know how to lead and, if you will, how to rule well. Certainly, um, I would say John Calvin operating in Geneva and trying to develop, if you will, the city of God in the city of man. That's part of that kind of experiment. So we do need to learn how to lead and rule well. But again, not now. Yeah. Not now. That's it's not where we are. And we can be studying that and learning from the mistakes of people who've operated in that way so that the revival that the remnant brings in might be sustained and might actually influence the lives of more and more people, not only the believers in Jesus, but those who will benefit from the values and virtues that come out of it. So yeah, anyway, and that may be, that may be a, a, a dominant motif as to why we see things so differently. I thought that was very helpful. Yeah. It's like it's almost like if you think about uh, the remnant regnant paradigm in some ways, like how the church is responding to its perceived loss of cachet and influence in the world. And right. it's like right. two, there's two ways to advance the kingdom. One is by the sword. And, you know, Peter takes up the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane to try to defend Jesus. And but right. Jesus says, put your sword away. I need to drink the cup uh, that the father's given me. So the other way is like. One way is, you know, tr trying to take it by force. Again, yeah, like 
Jesus was tempted to do this in the wilderness by Satan. I'll give you all the kingdoms, Jesus, you know, but G- but the the way that the kingdom comes is the cross and the resurrection. And I do right. think there's an invitation for all Christians, you know, as we sense the advance of secularism or the loss of power to trust God in that season, to not to not go for the sword and to trust God to resurrect his kingdom. Um, Anyway. Yeah, and one of the issues that comes up as we think about unity is, um, it's kind of a thorny one, is that there are some who prioritize unity over doctrinal purity. You know, we all sing songs together, we feel unified, but we lose our orthodoxy in the process. So how do we reconcile those values of truth and unity when they seem to be at odds? Yeah, I mean, uh, th- that's a really interesting question because, again, as, as I think we talked about earlier, there is, a, there is a, a case to be made for a certain type of disunity when it comes to uh, issues of, of doctrine, issues of what is the faith, who is this Jesus that we're promoting. We have to have some degree of unity on that. And again, as Paul said, there has to be di- disagreements or, uh, or disunity among you in order to prove the genuineness of your faith. There are true fault, uh, and false prophets. Um, but it's pretty clear that the New Testament makes a deal about keeping both of these elements uh, in some degree of creative tension. The commitment to doctrinal purity, to receiving and then passing along, as Paul did, the faith that was delivered uh, from the saints. Uh, what I received, I'm now passing along to you. Uh, the things that were uh, summarized in the classic creeds of the historic church, uh, of what we believe about God and what, what the scriptures teach, those are things that indeed need to be maintained. And in theory, in theory at least, admixed with a lot of uh, human hubris and cultural transformation, the Reformation was about a recovery of doctrinal purity. But at the same time, there is a pronounced, as we've just spoken about, commitment to church unity that is operating side by side. And so, you know, as we think about the Reformation, it was with great temerity that the Reformers sought to kind of approach the church and say, uh, we think you're in error because they knew that the that the challenge was going to be, that was going to be uh, creating the, the, the setting in which church unity could be in peril. In fact, most of the Reformers never had an intention of starting a new church, you know, like we do today. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of like, well, if I don't like the way they're singing the hymns uh, or the way that, you know, the pastor parts his hair, you know, I'm moving along and starting something new. Uh, we think nothing of that, but this emphasis in the scripture. So what does it mean to hold those things in tension? And, you know, sometimes the church unity thing has been an institutional unity. We don't question Mother Church, you know, we're going to keep it together. Uh, and that's tended to be the more Catholic or Orthodox side of the faith that has maintained that. And, and, and thanks be to God, I mean, frankly, the fall of communism was because the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox faith maintained unity mm-hmm. um, in the midst of an attempt by the enemy, secularly, 
trying to destroy God's church and God's people. And they said, they said in so many ways, yet it will not be so. <laughs> um, now, the Protestant church has tended to focus uh, on purity and sometimes, again, institutional. Uh, you know, I'm old enough to, be, to remember what theology was. Quote, unquote, this is theology, which was Western European theology and all others, such as liberation theology or African-American theology, uh, were viewed as being kind of nice, perhaps uh, little additions or even uh, pretenders or even uh, enemies to theology. Um, you know, there's been an institutional kind of commitment to, to doctrinal purity. And yet, as we read through the latter part of the New Testament, that's really clear that we want to maintain the unity of the faith against those who are going to be coming and bringing false and weird and strange doctrine our way. Mm -hmm. An analogy that was helpful to me comes out of a book called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made and another one called In His Image, written by um, a, a physician who worked uh, in a hospital that focused on people who had Hansen's disease, which is called leprosy uh, in the Bible. And he became fascinated with the analogy that Paul has of the body of Christ being like the church. So he wrote mm. this really wonderful book looking at things like uh, bones, looking at things like skin, looking at things like the brain. And he did a whole chapter on blood. And it's totally fascinating on mm. um, blood and how it's like the blood of Christ. And for most of us, particularly for men in the audience, blood means death. Women perhaps are a little more likely to understand that blood means life, but the reality is for a physician, a transfusion means life. And he analyzed how in blood, there are two polar opposites that are functioning, white blood cells and red blood cells. White blood cells exist to fight infection. They're the ones that look for the little impurities in the body and they go and take it out. They, mm -hmm. in some cases, kill it, literally kill it. And they are essential for the body of Christ. Without it, we have immune deficiencies and we mm. become prey to any virus that flies our way. We certainly know a lot about that in these days, but that's absolutely essential. A white blood deficiency means you are gonna die. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, are the red blood cells. They're the ones that bring the nourishment. They're the ones that bring the, the, uh, the kind of good stuff uh, to the body. And uh, they add to the body. Well, this can sort of be an analogy of these two wings uh, in the church. The white blood cells are like the Protestants, the doctrinal purists who are seeking to rid the church of heretical teachings. And that is critically important. We need to have them. However, if a church is full of them, then we have what we have in the history of the Protestant church, which is split after split after split after split after mm -hmm. split as the body literally eats itself alive. No good. On the other hand, no we good. have... Yeah, not good. On the other hand, we have uh, if we have all red blood cells, then anything goes. And any weird or strange doctrine or teaching can come our way. Any practice that, you know, the, the founders, uh, the, the apostles and prophets would say, what the heck is that? We say, oh, but it's good. It's kind. It's loving. Here it comes. 
And that can be sort of the church unity people who say, well, we don't want to divide the body. And in that case, we end up with all kinds of, you know, strange things happening and we get bloated and just fall apart. So I think it's really helpful that in your own body are these two supposedly disparate elements that are at work mm. together. Might that need to be the case in the body of Christ? Yeah. Mm. Wow. So, big monologue so, there, boys, but anyway. <laughs> so to, yeah, to turn the corner, so what do we do as those of us who are longing for revival in a time of uh, great division in our politics, but more importantly in the church, what, what do we do? Let me pause there because i got to move Hallie, yep. okay? Mm-hmm. Yep. Hold on just a sec. I wonder if we can, we could probably split it, you think? Yeah, whatever. Why? Just, it's a long one. I mean, I, I, I listen to podcasts in pieces sometimes. Yeah. I'm done. I've got home. Pause. Yeah. Get back in the car. It's going to be great. Unpause. Do you have to bounce at 130? No, not anymore. Oh, okay. Get canceled. you by the song why can't we be friends we're back hello 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 hey back uh, here we're back so is back. this okay, guys? I realized that was oh, yeah. a huge, long monologue. Is that no, all right? No, it's going to be great. Awesome. All right. It's going to be great. This part, this part is what I have least prepared, so I think this is a conversation about yeah. what do we do, about what yeah. do we do. That's great. You know, so, so what's the deal? So, so yeah. let me say that line again, and then... Yeah, what do we do? Take it away. So, okay, pause. So what do we do? Uh, as those of us who are longing for revival in this time of great division in our politics, but more importantly in the church, what do we do with this? What do we do now? Yeah. Long, long pause. Cause we're like, <laughs> what, what do we do? I mean, I, I obviously, and this is, uh, this is a thought, uh, that's going to sound kind of like duh or lame, but, I just think we have to pray for unity, like Jesus prayed go. for unity. Like we we have to we have to pray for unity. And um, you know, I also think that um, I really do think that this is a time that we have to actually renounce those other allegiances that we might have to ideology or to yeah. party or you know that's this is the basic thing that's or even to the United States of America to to yeah. the United States I pl- I mean I don't know this is going to sound well, terrible I, I, 
Go ahead, Lynn. Well, I was just going to say, we're not saying that we're going to renounce, you know, an an ideology or a country per se, but if that is rivaling uh, our allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ and to his body and to the fullness of his body, not just, you know, in my little church or my local community, but nationally and globally. I mean, I remember hearing a talk from somebody uh, who was an African believer who spoke about how the eye cannot say to the hand, um, I don't need you, referring to the African church cannot say to the Western church, we don't need you. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. really huge. So I would say the renunciation is not necessarily the ideology, but it's the way that it may be rivaling the controlling narrative of our life, Mm -hmm. which is the gospel uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ and the advancement of his kingdom. So yeah. that that little that little thing there, yeah. We yeah. we we've been wrestling with this question in our forerunners fellowship, Len, haven't we? Mm-hmm. I mean, like yep. we've been, I it's almost like week after week as we come back, this thing just keeps kind of coming up. Like, how, what do we yeah. do about the disunity that we yeah. are experiencing? Well, well, and again, Greg, I think, you know, just just the the emphasis on prayer, you know, not being as kind of like, oh, of course, you're going to pray. It's like, you know, the, the Sunday school kid saying, well, the answer is always Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. uh, of course. But here's the deal. Um, you know, this is a prayer that Jesus prayed on the night before he died, and it has not yet been fulfilled in, in its full measure. I mean, there will be a Revelation 7 day when you you and I... Anybody listening to this who's in Christ, we will be in the midst of this incredibly unified body, worshiping the Lord Jesus, serving him in ways we could never imagine. So that has yet to be fulfilled. What do you think Jesus is doing right now at this very moment? Well, we know the scripture tells us he is praying. He is interceding for us and for the world uh, at the right hand of the Father. That was testified by Stephen when he looked up as he's being stoned and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God, Mm. uh, that he is, as Paul says in Romans 8, interceding for us at the right hand of God. In fact, the writer of the Hebrews says Jesus lives to make intercession for us. What do you think is at the top of his list? I would say it's this John 17 prayer. So when we pray about this, about the disunity and our prayer that God would make us one, I think we're joining with Jesus in his prayer right now, right at this mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. moment. And uh, so, Lord, we do pray that you would fulfill this mm. prayer of yours. Um, mm. We know it's not going to be fulfilled in full until uh, the kingdom um, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is merged with the kingdom of this world and overtakes this broken kingdom that we're part of. But we pray that we would see it in some measure. I think that's really important, Greg, uh, you know, just yeah. The, yeah. the prayer piece. But then there's that other thing that we wrestle with, which is make every effort, make mm. every effort to maintain the unity uh, of the faith. Wow. What mm-hmm. does that mean? Uh, and I would say, you know, that's an invitation to be creative about how we might do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps not to be too kind of highfalutin, you know, kind of in the words of Psalm 131, I don't occupy myself with things that are too great for me. You know, we have a big vision of this gigantic unity of the church. Well, what are we doing with, you know, somebody we know who is in a different place from us in terms of their view of the world and their kind of particular ideology? Are they off the island? 
uh, are they kind of in another planet or are we are we gonna take a step and uh, yeah connect and learn and and listen you know everyone be quick to uh, slow to speak and quick to listen. What does it mean to listen to somebody who you think is coming from Mars uh, about their their perspective on today's uh, events? I don't know. And, and maybe I'll just, we could just end, end with a little vignette or a story. Because, I mean, Len, you challenged us all um, on the Foreigners Fellowship to, you know, have a civil conversation with another believer that, sees things differently politically from you. And I just have to admit, I thought, wow, that's, that's a great challenge. Uh, and I'm not going to do it because <laughs> I was like, I just don't, you know, not trying to divulge my political perspective here, but I'm just like, I don't really want to have that conversation. You know, it yeah. would just be easier not to, but, um, we ended up having a prayer time where, you know, not a lot of people showed up and these folks that did show up are some beloved people and they voted differently from me. And I think oh. listened to a totally different news channel than me. And we're all agreed that, that we need God to send revival. But I even think we may have different ideas about what that would even look like. And um, totally, totally. But we had 45 minutes where we just talked and listened to each other and nobody canceled anybody and nobody yelled at anyone and we'd had a base of trust and relationship and I think these folks felt really loved that they were able to you know almost come come out of the closet as it were uh, in terms of who they voted for and they felt like they weren't rejected and we were able to say well we love you guys and um and I think what was really interesting is at the end, we actually said, well, this is, you know, kind of awkward, but how can we agree in prayer uh, for revival? And we actually prayed for our nation and we agreed that we could all pray for truth and that truth would there win out go. over falsehood. And I think I thought that meant one thing and they probably thought it meant something totally different, but we were in <laughs> agreement about it. And so we prayed about it, and it was this incredibly awkward, strange, and also kind of beautiful moment where we actually, I don't think we did agree 100% politically, and yet there was this strange way that we were united together asking for something, and our hearts were soft. So um, I don't know. That's the closest I've gotten. So yeah. Uh, yeah. before that, I think I probably thought, well, this is impossible. Um, yeah. But I guess that would be the invitation or the challenge is to pray for unity, uh, to to watch our allegiances and to be careful about what we give allegiance to over Jesus and to take a next step uh, with yeah. someone like that. Yeah, and, and I would say if there are those who are in Christian leadership who are listening to this podcast, um, I'm involved in a ministry uh, of small groups that seeks to um, bring pastors, church leaders, and so forth, those who are involved in Christian leadership, uh, together in prayer um, and in, in fellowship with one another. Uh, it's sponsored by a thing called Barnabas Ministries, Inc., and they're called John 17, 23 groups. So they grow out of this prayer of Jesus. 
And the idea, uh, it actually was initiated by a bunch of pastors who really didn't like each other very much, but the Lord brought them together and they began to grow uh, with a remarkable sense of the unity of the body of Christ and the advance of the kingdom of God. And it's now moving around the world. Uh, this very simple concept of leaders of churches uniting with others who are not of their ilk, who are mm. not of their particular mm. strain and learning from each other and, and getting a bigger picture of the kingdom. I think that's part of revival. I think there's something about a ministry of presence mm. that we mm. show up and that we make a deliberate attempt to show up in settings with people that are really different from us in the Lord, uh, politically, uh, uh, culturally, racially, uh, in terms of age. I mean, the church is probably the last place, uh, at least in our culture, where multi-generations can be together uh, and can learn from each other. So I think just the simple thought of saying, Lord, uh, send me. Where would you send me to promote this unity of the body of Christ for the sake of the advance of the kingdom, for the sake of revival? I'm willing to put myself under somebody's sway or leadership or to listen or to learn about something that I think I know all about, but I really don't. Yeah. But you do, Lord. Show me. Show me. Wow. That is a great challenge for us as we close. Um, so I just want to thank you, Father Len, for uh, dropping all that epic wisdom on us in today's <laughs> episode. Thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Glad to be here. And I'm wondering if you could maybe uh, close us with a, a quick a quick blessing of unity for, sure. for everyone listening. Sure. So may the God who uh, brought... Uh, the good news to a divided and enslaved people because of sin and death. May the God who brings unity with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may that God send us forth as agents of his unifying love so that all people would come under the sway of the glorious Son of God, Jesus Christ, reigning in glory and coming soon uh, to bring heaven and earth together. May we find unity with others that we go, oh my gosh, I'm so grateful I got to know you. Thank you, Lord, for including us all in this marvelous kingdom of God. In your name we pray, Lord. Amen. 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 May it be so. Amen. Yes. All right. Yes. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on today's episode of the podcast. Uh, check out the next one. Like, subscribe, shoot us an email, revivalleadershippodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram. We would love to hear from you, what you're learning, what you're thinking. So please reach out and we'll see you next time. Bye.